0: broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere the misfit crew at South Fleet HQ is
1: proud to bring you the Die Living podcast.
0: Welcome back to another edition of the Softly Die Living Podcast. Uh, Today we have joining us Dr. Mike Roussel. I hope I'm saying that correctly. He is joining us from Rochester, New York, uh, via Silicon Valley, where he is a a frequent contributor to, I think, some of the more well-known health publications. Uh, Today we have Dr. Mike with us, and we're going to be chatting about all kinds of nutrition topics uh, along with Brooke our nutritionist here at uh, at SoftLead. So Dr. Mike, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Um so I feel like uh <clears throat> everyone who's a doctor that only goes by a first name is either <laughs> like <laughs> really good uh or really bad, right? So um, but at least very well known. Um <laughs> You know, but uh, it sounds like you're a lot more legit than like Dr. Phil.
2: So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> when I first met when I first met Doug, that's the first thing he said. He goes, "This guy goes by Dr. Mike. What kind of scammer is he?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I uh, I have a an educational doctorate, but uh, I sell myself as a you know as a medical doctor. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, yeah, Dr. Mike, if you can tell us a little bit more, I guess about you know about your background. Uh, yep. We can lead off there, and then I think maybe we can dig into some some interesting nutrition topics.
1: Sure. So I um, so I started out actually in medical school, trying to be an actual doctor. And um, right after I graduated, I have a degree in biochemistry and went to medical school and um, didn't really like medicine at all. Um, I, I joke that I'm grossly unemployable, so <laughs> I would have I made a bad doctor because of all the people who would have I wouldn't have done well being told what to do. But um, I mean, it was just kind of like the path and, and kind of medicine wasn't as much science. Like for the average medical practitioner, it wasn't as much science as I was hoping for. And, and I always had a passion for nutrition. So I left medical school, um, much the chagrin of all my relatives who were happy to have the first doctor in the family and went to graduate school and got my Ph.D. in nutrition at Penn State. And I studied uh, cardiovascular disease nutrition. So kind of the the effects of of nutrition on your cardiometabolic system, and um, and that was really fascinating, I got to work with one of the kind of the top cardiovascular researchers in the world, so that was better than I could have ever imagined. And then graduated, and kind of keeping my, after I got my PhD, we had, my wife and I had three kids, we had three kids when I was in graduate school, and at that point, um, it was a, we were a big ship to kind of move around, and we didn't want to kind of move out, out of the northeast where our family is, so I just kind of started my own business, uh, working as a consultant did freelance writing. Um, I worked out of a gym in New York City. I commuted from central Pennsylvania to New York City for probably about four years, wow. um, on and off. And you basically can only drive because there's no there's no flights there. But I commuted into Manhattan and I worked out of this gym uh, called Peak Performance, which is no longer around. But it was through there I got to meet and just kind of deal with an awesome um, clientele. So from professional athletes, basketball players, mixed martial artists, and kind of tech executives, finance people, models. Like I just kind of had this uh, variety of clients working with. Uh, so lots of different problems, lots of things to, to kind of solve. And that's that's kind of how I got on my path with with nutrition. That's awesome,
0: man. Um, so just to go back a little bit, why nutrition and cardiovascular science? You know, why not neurology? Or Was there something specific that led you to that or did you just kind of fall into it?
1: So one of the things that got me – I got really into nutrition initially because I was into I was into bodybuilding as a kid right. and was into weightlifting. So that's kind of what got me into it. And then one of the books that really got me turned on to nutrition as something I could study was uh, was the Zone Diet. And so this so Barry Sears, the guy who wrote the Zone Diet, is it's all about inflammation and how inflammation impacts the body and how nutrition can impact inflammation. Um, Looking back on it, some of his ideas are rather simplified, but it, it kind of got me down that path of inflammation being the driving force, and um, the lab group that I was joining, you know, they just they studied nutrition, cardiovascular disease in a clinical setting, and so I was kind of looking at: do I want to do research with people, or do I want to do ingestive behavior with rats? So it was more looking at feeding studies with animals, and uh, definitely want to work with humans versus animals, and so I found my way into this this lab group. And, um, it was kind of serendipitous, like as a graduate student, they pay for your research, like they pay for your studies mm-hmm. through grants. And so when I was there, this grant came up looking at beef and cardiovascular disease. I'm a big fan of red meat. So it worked out really well. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just started running that study. So it was just kind of the, the path, like inflammation and then cardiovascular disease fit really well of also kind of where I could get in, um, as a graduate student. Got it. No, that makes a lot of sense, and
0: uh, I have to say, I share I share your love for meat. Um, (laughs) We actually we own a butcher shop here in North Carolina as well. Oh really? Yeah, and uh, I mean, mainly that was driven from when I met my wife. She was a vegetarian, and Mm -hmm. you know, kind of our our, and I was anything but, and our compromise was kind of eating humanely sourced meat if you will yeah um and that led us down this whole rabbit hole uh you know of learning about kind of sustainable agriculture and also the nutritional differences between you know like pasture raised livestock and kind of more industrial raised livestock yeah um yeah and ultimately the you know the butcher shop was kind of a, a result of all of that stuff coming together um and it's uh we recently had the The guy that raises all the beef that we buy on the podcast as well, um, he's a, a neuro ophthalmologist, and so mm-hmm. he's got a really strong science background to kind of understand animal genetics and you know different uh, food qualities and whatnot. And I mean, this, all this stuff is is so so interesting and almost like mesmerizing sometimes, uh, especially how big the how big the differences can be at what you would initially perceive to be like such a, a minor change or, you know, kind of like minutia level. So. Yep.
1: Yeah. The, I I think the genetic stuff that they do kind of with, with animals and, you know, with this cow specifically that I know about, it's, it's really amazing. Um, And I think if people could only, if like the end consumer could only understand like a fraction more of what's going on, Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. in the food supply, I think it would just be so, so eye-opening. Yeah. Be no, definitely.
0: Um, so, I mean, going back to kind of the peak performance days, um, yep. you know, starting there and then maybe leading up, um, you know, one of the things you talked about was seeing such like a huge variety in, you know, different clientele. Uh, yeah. Not only, you know, their backgrounds, but body composition and also their goals, right? So. Yeah you know, what were you doing? You know, what's your kind of methodology or, you know, where's your focus um, as far as being able to kind of help all those different types of people? Um, you know, how do you tackle those problems differently and, you know, approach, approach all those people differently, but in a way that makes sense for everyone?
1: So I think one of the things about peak performance, which I was more of a blessing that I really appreciated at the time was getting to work with such a variety of people. And you know, I think, there are a couple things. One of the things with when you're working with somebody or even just kind of think about your nutrition yourself is I think we get obsessed with our individual differences, but there are so many kind of commonalities amongst humans. And I think that's what you need to tackle first. Whereas most people want to know like very specifics about themselves and they want to get their DNA tested and their biome tested and all this <laughs> other stuff. But we need to kind of like focus on the basics first. And I, and I kind of look at nutrition and I started looking at it in two different buckets. So one is like, what are we, what is the person currently doing with their nutrition and how can we change that to reach their goal? Like what are the first steps we need to get there? And then the other part is, what are they willing to do based on what we need to do? And I, I didn't appreciate the what are people willing to do part for a long time. Um, you know, I think what we, you know, you have your your main goal, whatever that outcome the person wants to achieve for a lot of people, it's body composition, right? And so what's their diet now? And then how do we need to change their diet to get them moving in that direction? And my whole philosophy has always been, let's change their diet as little as possible in order to get them to move to their goal as fast as possible. So if like the only thing we need to change from your diet is like, you need to not drink six beers every day and you drink one beer and then you start losing weight, getting to your goal. Then let's just, let's start with that. Right. And then, so, so it's kind of, how do we make these small changes that have the biggest effects? And then the other piece is like, well, what are they willing to do? And what was interesting when I was working at a peak is I had people with a variety of different means. Like most people in New York city don't cook. So the, a lot of people would just, it was all order out, you know, like they would even deliver. New York City is like the only place where you would like order scrambled eggs to get delivered to you. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? And so it was, So we had that. So it was kind of like that level all the way up to, you know, like some of the professional athletes I was working with or some of the executives, they had private chefs. And so I could get that person to weigh and measure the food. So there was a variety of like what the person was willing to do. And I I really think the secret sauce is matching those two things up in reality. Mm -hmm. Like people often like to make, I think, Creating a diet is like fun and exciting a lot of times for people, you know, thinking about like all the foods they're going to eat and all the weight they're going to lose or, or, you know, the muscle they're going to gain. And it's kind of this big dopamine dump of anticipation, but then Monday comes and they actually have to make the food and they have to actually not eat the pizza and, you know, kind of stick to their plan. And then it's like such a downer. And so oftentimes one of the things that I thought that was bringing to the table was very valuable was just like, kind of like a realistic view on how hard it is to eat vegetables at every meal like how hard it is to eat a gram of protein per pound body weight every single day for the next 12 weeks. Um, And then just kind of holding people accountable to, to the things that they said they would do.
0: Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Well, after peak, you know, after you left peak performance, um, you know, then kind of what did you decide to do? Is that when you struck out kind on your own?
1: Yeah. So I, so when I was working at peak, I was kind of always I was always on my own, like a kind of as an independent contractor. And I couldn't travel there to the city like as much from central PA to make myself an employee. But um, so I was always kind of consulting on my own. And then I got just kind of through referrals and through some clients connected with some different people and companies in Silicon Valley, kind of doing the work that I had done with professional athletes, but then applying it to executives. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I'd done with professional athletes is get them set up with a chef and then get the chef to, I would create like kind of specific diet uh, specifications. The chef would make up the meals and then me or, or a dietitian that I have that works with me would set the gram amount. So they would basically make sure the chef was weighing and measuring exactly the amount of food that we wanted. So knowing if we have this extreme nutritional control on this end, then we would know what would happen on the other end from like a performance standpoint or from a body composition standpoint. And... You know, especially like the NBA with like kind of everyday, not mixed martial arts, but kind of the NBA was where I did most of my work and their travel schedule. You know, they're on the road half the time. Right. And so it's it's recovery is always an issue. And just kind of the in-season, out-season changes in -hmm. what they would do. They were huge. You know, if you go from just being at home and and training seven days a week, like in the off-season, versus on the road every other day doing two or three different time zones a week, like they're very different kind of recovery and nutritional, uh, requirements kind of on your body. And, you know, the NBA schedule dictates a lot of that. So you can't, you can't adjust your recovery or your, your exertion based off what you want to do. It's kind of like if the team's doing two games in two nights and one games in LA and the other games in Texas, like that's just what you got to do. Um, so, so using nutrition to kind of mitigate those, uh, those damages from scheduling and things. Um, so I took that model that I created and started applying it to executives, which are essentially, I call them corporate athletes. Um, a lot of them, especially a lot of people in Silicon Valley, they're changing time zones. Um, you know, it's high stress, it's a different kind of stress, but it's still high stress. They need exercise. Like, you know, they need an aerobic capacity to be able to maintain their work performance. Um, like a guy who, or a woman who's eating well and is fit does so much better in a business setting than someone who's not. And so, so that's kind of what I've been what I've been working on kind of more recently, like in the one-on-one nutrition space. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And
0: actually, I think, uh, you know, our customers are probably very similar to the people you're describing, um, except for the fact that they don't have personal chefs. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would be sweet, though. You know, it uh, would be sweet. Uh, but I think, honestly, a lot of our customers are guys who are traveling a lot, you know, guys that are... In the military, you know, especially soft guys are like constantly doing training um, exercises or deployments, uh, yep. you know, that their schedules aren't regular. We have a lot of guys that are doing shift work, um, again, where their schedules are not necessarily regular over the long haul, mm-hmm. um, you know, and where recovery is, they're, you know, doing hard, hard jobs that are stressful. Reco- recovery is always an issue uh, just because, again, you know, changes in schedule and uh, how much work they're putting in. I think most yep. of our guys probably don't have too much of a problem as far as building aerobic capacity goes because either their jobs or one of the reasons that, you know, they're customers of ours or the fact that they are they are getting that, you know, that work capacity in. Um, but, you know, what's your recommendation for people that, that don't have access to a chef um, that are traveling? You know, what are the things, the most important things that they need to be doing – to make sure that, you know, they're, they're aiding their recovery and, you know, being kind of optimal given their tools, uh, you know, as far as nutrition goes,
1: I think from a, from a recovery standpoint, because if you look at, I think we greatly, I think, underestimate the stress that travel, especially kind of like airline multi-time zone travel or, or anything like that at like the amount of stress that that impacts our system. Mm-hmm. And, and thus impacts our metabolism and our biochemistry. So you know if you've been traveling and if you're in a different time zone and feeling jet lagged, like you don't just feel like crap, you know, like your, your insulin sensitivity is not gonna be where it normally is. You know, like your ability to process nutrients like you normally would isn't gonna be there. And I think we've generally neglected that, you know, kind of the changes in these both acute and kind of chronic stress, mm-hmm. how those things impact our metabolism. Um, so I think when you're traveling a lot, the number one thing to focus on really is trying to tune into like the level of stress and and your level of recovery, because, you know, I find that a lot of people, you know, especially I would imagine your customers, like they're just getting after it all the time. And even if you're kind of like tired or on the road, like you still got to get it in. And so you're still getting after it, but you need to start thinking more aggressively about recovery and about regeneration from like a, from a sleep standpoint or whether it's kind of a lower intensity aerobic sessions to help, you know, stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system so you can work on the recovery side. And then nutritionally, what are you then, can you do? And so appreciating that, you know, if you're getting poor sleep, like that's going to impact your body's ability to process carbohydrates the next day um, due to hormonal changes in, in sleep, you know, from acute sleep deprivation. And so with most of my clients, once they hit the road, we go more aggressively on carb restriction because they're getting, cause they're getting less sleep and their insulin sensitivity is going to be down. And so when you're traveling, I think the things you need to think about protein is generally the hard. I find protein to be the harder thing to get on the road at breakfast consistently, because yeah. a lot of times you find yourself in a position where people consider cereal breakfast. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, I, protein powder is something that I'll generally have all clients travel with because then you know you can get in protein in the morning, regardless of kind of what you're served. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's kind of some new research, some of it coming out of Purdue, showing that protein at breakfast might actually be the most important time of day to get protein, from the perspective of controlling your blood sugar levels throughout the whole day. And That's interesting. And that's the that's the time of day when people generally get the least amount of protein. So when you're traveling, it's kind of always thinking protein. And then also spending a little bit of time to do some due diligence and to do some, some recon uh, on the nutrition front where you're traveling. Um, So one of the things that I work with clients do, I call them nutrition audibles. So is that, so if you are in a situation and all of a sudden where you thought you're going to get your meal goes awry, that you have some backup plan that's there ready for you to, to use. So, you know, there's a chain of restaurants and you always get X meal and that's already kind of scripted and spec'd out. So that you're not trying to make a food decision when you're in like a tired, stress situation, because that's when you're generally going to make a bad food decision. Yep. Um, so when you're traveling, that's, you know, really valuable. And, you know, nowadays, like I'll travel and do a bunch of um, continue education talks. It's I mean, regardless of where I travel in the country, you always still there are like 10 restaurants that you're going to see at least three of them, no matter where you are. And so if you can go and find at these you know, different restaurants that you always see, fast food or regular restaurants, what are three meals that you know you always can get? Is that kind of having those in your back pocket so when things go awry, knowing that you can just go and get that meal and it's going to fit all your needs. And so doing a little bit of that extra due diligence really can make all the difference.
2: That's really good advice. You brought up an interesting topic I wanted to go back to, kind of about the sympathetic versus parasympathetic system. Mm -hmm. And George actually talks about this a lot using breathing exercises to bring yourself back to that parasympathetic state. But I think what we forget is we can do the same thing with food and hormones, kind of like you're talking about. Yeah. So what are some things, like, I kind of want to touch on, we had someone interested in how your body responds to glucose and how it brings you into the parasympathetic state. Do you want to just like talk about that a little bit more?
1: I don't know if like, um, I don't know I'd say like glucose necessarily the parasympathetic, I don't know if glucose brings you into the parasympathetic state, but when you're kind of this more parasympathetic drive, kind of like fight or flight drive, <clears throat> that's a situation where your body is going to be mobilizing glucose. And so having high glucose levels could probably mimic, you know, I would say, you know, yeah. maybe like, mimic like eating that state. food, right? Yeah. Like it mimics that state. And so, you know, I think that either whether if you're always kind of running this high glucose situation, you know, your body doesn't like to do two opposing things at once. Kind of like if you're in this parasympathetic st- or sympathetic state and you're mobilizing glucose, you're mm-hmm. not going to be pulling from your, say, fat reserves or storing fuel in a different way. And one of the things that I've kind of started to play around with with clients in travel, and it was partly because just uh, food in uh, airports is so horrible, and is that is doing some meal skipping. I don't really want to call it intermittent fasting, but more kind of like planned meal skipping, that you could be in a situation where you don't eat, and your body doesn't totally freak out. You know, like if you go four hours or six hours without eating a meal that you don't feel like you're going to fall down and that your heart's, you know, going crazy and you're going hypoglycemic. Like I think that that's an important piece that we, you know, that I've started layering into, to people's diets who are kind of more stressed or are in a lot of these travel situations because, Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say intermittent fasting. I
0: know seems like it's kind of on the downward slope of popularity, but especially, as a way to kind of positively affect, you know, hormonal balances throughout the day, or use, you know, hormones uh, to your benefit for body composition changes, you know, was something that seemed like there was a lot of research coming out uh, about that topic for a number of years. Uh, I get the sense that maybe you're not as crazy about it.
1: Um, I think that the data, for me, I think the data shows that if you eat a low carb diet, like kind of a, a low carb diet that you get just as good of a benefit from a health perspective and a weight loss perspective as intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people would generally prefer to eat versus not eat. Sure. Um, but I also think that there's this idea of uh, metabolic flexibility, which is that your body is, fle- is very flexible in the, in the fuel source. So that if your body needs to use fat as a fuel, it can. If you needs to use glucose as a fuel, that it can and vice versa. And, and it's kind of called fuel switching. And when I think for a while, when people kind of got into this, let's eat four or six meals, like every two or three hours, and they were eating very regularly, that you kind of get your body into a rut. Whereas if you were to skip one of those meals, or two of those meals, like your metabolically, your body would freak out because it was expecting that fuel and you weren't ready, you weren't ready to mobilize the fat or the fuel needed to, to take care of your system before you reach the next meal. And so I think that, putting in periods of fasting so that your body can handle that like could you wake up not eat breakfast and eat your first meal at three o'clock and still go through your day like i have a lot of clients who couldn't do that like their body would just totally freak out and metabolically i don't think that's necessarily a healthy position like i think you should be able to eat you know not eat or eat and still be able to perform and i would imagine you know like a lot of your clients the soft guys there are lots of situations where they need to skip meals and still perform at a high level. And so kind of, are you stress testing your body in that way? Um, And so I use airplane travel or airline food, um, skipping that as an opportunity for people to kind of test the limits of, of how their body can metabolically switch fuels.
0: Yeah. A lot of guys, uh, you know, when you hear guys give advice about going to selection, you know, one of the things they talk about is essentially not going too lean into a selection event, right? It's like, hey, Mm -hmm. you're going to be calorie restricted for the next, you know, two weeks to eight weeks, and you want to have that extra 10 or 15 pounds of, uh, you know, McDonald's or whatever it is kind of uh, on your body so that when you're super calorie restricted a few weeks in, you're – you're still able to get energy, uh, you know, from those stores. You're going to be losing that weight over the course of the event, and you may as well go into it kind of with that reserve rather than, you know, looking like uh, you go right onto the set of Baywatch and end up, you know, kind of like crashing <laughs> yeah. twelve hours into it, right?
1: Yeah, so. and also, and also being no, I think that's right. Like you need to have that fuel there to use, but then you need to be in a state where your body can access it. You yep. know, like like a lot of people. Um, you know, if you think of like the average American who's overweight and pre-diabetic, right? Like they have a lot of fuel that could carry them through many selections, but they don't have the you know, like they don't have the metabolic flexibility or kind of capacity to access to readily access that fuel, um, in order to uh, you know to use the fat that they have stored there.
0: Right. So if you let's say you start changing your diet, um, you know, so that you are more metabolically flexible, or that's your goal. Yeah. You know, how long does that take, and what are the what are the steps people need to take is in order to make that change? Um, you know, especially, let's say, uh, you know, a, a lot of our customers are younger guys who, you know, are maybe looking to actually gain weight. You know, put on muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think due to you know both like budget constraints, time constraints, um, and just kind of like a a general lack of knowledge maybe in the kitchen, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like in exactly what you said are, are eating out a lot. And I think for, for most of our clients that don't live in New York city or, or really any big city where, like you said, you can get anything delivered, you know, like we if, have to if scramble you can, your own eggs. Yeah. Like if you can imagine <laughs> it, you know, you can have it delivered in 20 minutes, um, yeah. you know, by some dude on a bike, you know, like a single speed bike um, that a lot of those guys are just going through the drive through. Right. And so, you know, what do they need to do to go from, you know, that's their habit to getting to a place where they're totally metabolically flexible?
1: Yep. So I think part of the, uh, I think you start a couple different steps. Like if your habit is kind of, you have that drive-through habit is looking in and saying, well, in this situation, what's the best choice that I could make with what I'm doing? You know, one of my early mentors always said, like, you need to do the best with what you have. And so if you are living the drive through life, like what's the, what are the best choices that you can make at the drive through or instead of stopping at this store, like, could you stop at the next store? Like, uh, like I think uh, like Boston market, we have those up here in the Northeast. I don't know if they have them down in North Carolina or in other places, but I feel like it's generally, it's like rotisserie chicken yep. and vegetables. And it's generally an underrated place for people to stop. So it might be just as much as switching stores or looking at what you're eating. Like, um, that when I lived in central Pennsylvania, I had an office in, in State College and there was a Chipotle across the street. And I used to always order based on like Chipotle has a man has a nutrition calculator. So you can go in and you can calculate kind of what you want to order.
2: I love that. And thing. basically
1: you say no to everything at Chipotle in order to get your meal under a thousand calories. <laughs> right. And so I would go and I knew I had like this like seven hundred calorie meal that was just like how I wanted it. And I would stand in line and there would be these, you know. College girls who are a third of my size, ordering like a fifteen hundred calorie meal, but they were feeling good because it was you know like locally sourced and chipotle and they had these good feelings about it.
0: Taco salad's and, a salad, right? It's got to yes, be healthy. Exactly, a taco salad,
1: <laughs> like double the meat with sour cream and guacamole and cheese, like
0: crunchy fried bowl. <laughs> like,
1: so I think like part of it is, um, is just taking you know don't even have to change where you're going but just become a little more aware of what you're consuming and every place has calorie counts nowadays. And you can look up, you know, I just did a piece with a writer for men's health where it was kind of like best fast food choices. Mm -hmm. Like you can go to every single restaurant and at least get an estimate. You know, I don't think that the kid making minimum wage at Chipotle is like measuring how much chicken he's putting on your burrito, but you know, it's kind of a, you have a good estimate.
0: I think a lot of times that stuff's so standardized though, man, because you know, the restaurants are so concerned, about consistency and waste mm-hmm. you know that that even if that guy isn't measuring it you know like someone else is measuring it for him right like yeah. here's the scooper like the pre-measured portion etc um yeah. and i think that if anything you probably are are probably getting a pretty consistent meal at
1: most most chain type places yeah um so but, but so i think it's going there you know like kind of my basic tenants you know, from a nutrition foundation of you want to have vegetables at every meal. You have protein at every meal. You want to um, kind of eat your starchy, so kind of your grain-based carbohydrates closer to exercise or mm-hmm. earlier in the morning. And then, kind of depending on your level of training, like if your training is very aggressive, then it doesn't really matter as much. But you just apply that to where then you're going. So if you're going to you know X fast food restaurant, just think like where. How can I get vegetables here? Where am I getting my protein? You know, how am I cutting out added sugars? And if you can ask yourself these simple questions, I call them the six pillars of nutrition, then you you get pretty far down the road, you know, without ever needing a private chef. You know, that's right. more, it's usually more of a convenience and a luxury than a requirement to hit these basics. And the more, the more active you are and, you know, with your clients who are training hard and frequently- You're a lot more forgiving with your diet, you know, and some of the big keys to becoming more metabolically flexible are improving your insulin sensitivity. And so if you are getting leaner or exercising frequently, those are two really good ways to do it. Right. And and then I would say the next thing that you would layer on that would just be to exercise in different states. So don't always exercise with carbohydrates, you know, sometimes exercise fasted, sometimes exercise at a meal, be able to exercise in a, in, in different situations so that your body becomes able to fuel itself, which whatever fuel is available, not kind of always having glucose available.
0: Yeah, no, totally. Um, two things to kind of mention there. One is just a side note, but if you remember those, I think it was like Bud Light commercials back in the day, the real men of genius, um, the Mr. Giant Taco Salad Inventor one is, is like so, so amazing. Um, like we're going to have to maybe like play it at the end of the podcast. I mean, it's it's like hands down my my favorite Real Men of Genius commercial. Um, but the second is that I think, you know, what you say is we fall into habits so easily. And in some ways that's, that's really good, right? Because, yep. I mean, habit is the type of, you know, good habits keep us on track. Um, but the flip side is that you know if you're always used to you know doing X before Y, it become you become more inflexible, um, and and those little those little things how they link together uh, can open up you know like really big differences down the line. You know a friend of ours um, he was talking about how he switched um, he switched gyms and basically went from a gym that only had bumper plates to a gym that had like kind of a combination of bumper plates and like the old school like you know like steel or iron iron plates Mm -hmm. um and so he started deadlifting with metal instead of bumper plates and when he went to a competition uh where they only had bumper plates he like blew out his pr you know it was like he performed way better than he thought he was going to um and, you know, he's trying to figure out, like, man, like, what, you know, was I just having a really good day or, you know, what was the issue? And someone finally pointed out, they're like, hey, man, you know, if you look at when you're putting a 100-pound plate on the bar that's maybe, you know, like two and a half inches wide versus, like, a 100 pounds of bumper plates that's, like, a foot wide, you know, when you go to lift that bar, you're actually lifting the weight almost like a you know the whole concept of putting chains on the bar right like yeah, yeah. the ends of the bar aren't coming off the floor at the same time the middle of the bar is there's just enough of a bend right yeah and that little bit right of training where the weight was closer in so you had to pick that all up at once and then transitioning to with the bumper plates where you could start the pole essentially a little bit lighter because mm-hmm. the ends of the bar were still on the ground you know yeah. it was enough to give him that edge in competition and, yep. you know, that's yeah. something that, I mean, he never would have thought of, you know, until it happened. Um, but when you make the comment about, you know, hey, don't always train, you know, with carbs, like, you know, right before or right after the your workout, et cetera, kind of switch it up. Um, you know, that I think it, it it made me immediately think of that, right? Like, how can you get yourself into a into a situation where you're on a routine that's keeping you doing good things, but not so ingrained in the routine that it's, you know, holding you back. The other thing, mm-hmm. uh, this kind of like leads to my next question for you is I think so often people are so worried about making the wrong choice. Um, on like a really detailed level, right? So, yep. you know, okay, I don't have to train with carbs all the time, but you know, like which, which workouts are the ones that I need for it then, you know, is it totally random or, you know, um, Am I going to do a workout that I should have trained with carbs? And afterwards, someone's going to be like, holy cow, you didn't train with carbs for that workout. Like, what were you thinking? You know, like, no, no, that's <laughs> yeah. not the one. Um, you know, I think for – and and this goes for, for most things. Like, in the beginning, it probably doesn't really matter, right? But as you yep. dial up your performance, you know, the, that timing and those those changes, you know, get more important. So, you know, what what are the things that people need to know as far as – hey, these are the rules you definitely shouldn't break. Or, you know, as you are progressing and you're hitting your goals and you're starting to plateau, you know, what are the things you need to start tweaking or how do those rules need to change? Um, because it obviously, you know, what we've been saying so far is essentially just, you know, like eating healthy is the first step, right? Yeah. Um, and so after you're, let's say you're already doing that or you, you've already made that change, like what's the next step then?
1: Yep. So, so yeah, I would say eating healthy consistently is the first step and why that has so much play with such a wide variety of people is the consistency standpoint. And I feel like if you're not, you're not tracking how consistent you are with your diet, then you really have no idea because humans have a very unique ability to forget all the pizza, cakes, cookies, and pies that they (laughs) consume during the week. And they only remember all the salads that they eat. So I think it's really as simple as like, you know, X's on a calendar days that you've, you know, kind of hit all your rules and your guidelines for nutrition. Do all your clients keep food journals um, or their chefs keep keep the food journals? No. So, so I would say kind of with anybody um, like food journals, kind of like writing what you've eaten afterwards Works, I think, initially, but it's a little more react, you know, kind of it's more reactory. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of like the after the fact. So I like meal plans a little bit more like that. They're planning to do these things and then we'll check off that they did them. Sure. And I think you have to
0: combine them, right? Because if you have a meal plan and you skip a meal, but you eat, you know, pizza and ice cream instead, yes, it's easy yes. to be like, well, uh, you know, Hey, that just doesn't show up in the meal plan. Right. Like <laughs> yes. you know, out of sight, no. out of mind.
1: Yes. <clears throat> so like I have a, what I'll do actually with a lot of clients, it's super simple. We use Google forms and mm-hmm. they get an email every morning where they like, it's like a, you know, a, a drop down menu for breakfast. We call it kind of like the optimal breakfast, um, like a, an inline breakfast or a freestyle breakfast. So the optimal breakfast is the meal that was planned. An inline breakfast of it's in line with the plan. So you know life kind of threw you a curveball and you didn't eat the specific thing you were supposed to eat, but it still kind of hit our rules of like a starch, a vegetable, and a, and a protein, right? That they got kind of those main things. Right. And then a freestyle was basically just you know they were you know cinnabon basically. So so yeah, so we we always keep something like that so we can quantify and track. I mean it's just like you would track you go you know you track your weights and sets and reps in the gym, because you want to know what you did. Um, same thing with the food, you know, with kind of food log and food journal. Sure. And so once you've kind of nailed that consistency of the goals, you just kind of move to like, I call it the stages of nutrition, you move to the next stage, where you're, you're more concerned with amounts and types of foods at, you know, kind of on a more specific level. So this kind of gets more into tracking macronutrients, and then specific, you know, foods and meal sizes. And I think this is important for people because you know, there's some really interesting data to show that you could put someone on a, on a kind of a moderate carbohydrate, moderate fat diet, kind of like a zone, call it paleo-ish from a macronutrient standpoint, or you could put the, someone on a low fat diet, so it'd be about 50% of calories from carbohydrates, 20% from fat, and these two different groups would lose the same amount of weight. But then if you start and you segment those people by their insulin sensitivity, the people with poor insulin sensitivity lose more weight on the carbohydrate restricted diet than on the lower fat, higher carbohydrate diet. So when you kind of look at two individuals who are seemingly the same body type, but aren't responding, you know, similarly to the diet, then it starts to be like an underlying metabolic difference.
0: Yeah. How do you figure out which category you are part of? Is it just trial and error?
1: Um, so you could do it a couple of ways. Like I think if, if you've been nailing kind of your foundational nutritional principles and for four to six weeks, and you're not making that progress, like if it's, let's say it's weight loss, and you're not making that weight loss progress, then I think you need to start looking more specifically at carbohydrate type and amount. Um, You could also just get some simple blood tests, like if you got a fasting blood sugar, or you got a hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of a more of a running average of your blood sugar over three months, and if those are elevated, like when you talk to your physician or or the the dietitian you're working with, and those are kind of elevated towards the pre-diabetes level, and I think a lot of people are surprised that even if they're leaner, that they can still have kind of higher blood sugar, Um, then you need to start looking at more carbohydrate restriction than kind of free for all carbohydrate intake. And so, you know, it's a blood test or it's just kind of like your body composition is not changing. The first thing I would start doing is start moving down your carbohydrates, capping it at 40% of calories and then moving down as low as 20, but usually about 30% of calories is enough to get people, you know, kind of moving in the right direction. Right. Yeah, and, you know, one of the
0: things, the blood test is really interesting because I feel like we are, well, everything in general is becoming more personalized, yep. um, and one of those things, you know, you have these, like, 23andMe, you know, .com tests uh, that are, you know, these, like, genetic ancestry type things. Are you seeing a lot of work uh, or things coming out that are really, you know, tests that then help totally tailor, you know, either nutrition plans or something else to the individual uh, you know are those tools that that you are seeing like more viably accessible uh to the average person
1: i think a lot of the i'm a big i'm a big believer in simplicity all right and well while, while i love my wife says like i love tech and gadgets well i love gadgets and and i love kind of that you can do all these things i think you always need to ask the question like is this going to change what we're actually doing mm-hmm. you know and you know, like if you're still in this first bucket where you haven't nailed the foundational stuff, like it doesn't, I don't, you know, it, figuring out your genetic profile and how that impacts carbohydrate tolerance, that doesn't necessarily matter if you're just not doing anything consistently. Sure. But as, as people kind of progressively move to the next buckets, moving down kind of the specificity level of nutrition commitment and right. detail, those other things can become valuable. But you know, I think when you look at a lot, there are a handful of companies now who take your 23andMe, take your genetic data, and they'll plug it into kind of more an athletic profile to kind of look at more genes that, um, and look at more at your DNA that's regarding to like nutrient metabolism and, mm-hmm. and exercise performance. The nutrient stuff, it's still, they're still kind of guessing. Like if you look at the references and the studies that they're referencing, it's not very conclusive. Um, like I remember I did one and it was basically all these red bars saying that I should not touch or look at carbohydrates based on my, my genetics. But then when you kind of looked at the references and and what they were using to back up those, um, kind of the bars and the claims in your report, like they were pretty weak. Um, so I think a lot of that stuff right now is they're flashy objects. Um, I think you can go really far with some, some classic blood tests. Like if you do like your cardiovascular risk panel, which gets you all your lipids, it gets you your fasting blood sugar. Uh, you look at thyroid hormone, you do kind of like a traditional um, testosterone, total free testosterone, uh, vitamin D, magnesium, blood magnesium is not a common one, but if you can get that, like if you kind of get just get those, which you can get mostly from your doctor, like you don't need to go to some a fancy place to do it, that that gets... I would say 99 to 95 to 99% of my clients is what we would use that we don't really use the the super fancy stuff.
2: Yeah, the new ones I've seen some collegiate athletes I worked with use with it's like how do you metabolize sodium or caffeine and it was interesting but like you're saying I didn't really see that there was that much like application to it, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. I think it's interesting. Like I'm a fast caffeine metabolizer, which is interesting, which just kind of gave me more free reign to drink more coffee, but it didn't necessarily impact, you know, what you were doing or kind of your performance. Sure. Uh, so I think that's kind of that's kind of where we are. I think we're in the same place kind of with the microbiome stuff. You know, that's really popular. Like there are a couple companies where you can look at your, you can have your gut um, bacteria uh, profiled and I had a client that wanted to do it. And I was like, look, I'm like, we're kind of, it, it literally wouldn't change anything we're doing. Like we have kind of this well-rounded probiotic that targets, there's one probiotic that can actually target your cardiovascular risk profile. It can get reduce triglycerides and total cholesterol and this certain strain. And so like, we're doing this, but we're doing this probiotic like we're stress reduction and these different things as much as we can. You know, we're on fermented foods in the morning. Like I'm a big uh, cup of key for every day. Like I'm a big believer in that. And so we're doing all these things. I'm like, I can't see what this test is going to give us that's going to change what we're doing, you know, based on kind of like your effort and availability to take on new things. Sure. So I think that's an important thing to, to add.
0: Well, but I mean, uh, you know, even the like the probiotic, right? That's something that I'd never even heard of before. Um, is that something that's relatively new? Something that's targeting, you know, like a CRP, like lipid risk or...
1: It's uh, you know, it's funny. It's because there aren't very many. There was like a company that sold it, and then I, that company went under. And there are a couple other places um, sell it. But it, basically, what it does is it helps um, with bile excretion. Mm-hmm. So it helps basically with with excessive cholesterol excretion. It gotcha. also then helps lower your triglycerides. But it, I mean, I think it's awesome because. For you know, like I have some clients, and because of my like my PhD is a little more in cardiovascular disease, like we'll delve a little more for kind of like the older people in mm-hmm. the cardiovascular profiles. But some people, like no matter literally, no matter what you do, like their lipid profile just does not move in the right direction. Yeah, and uh, and this is something that works really well, especially for people who don't want to go on a statin.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sure. So what yeah. uh, do you mind telling us what the the probri- probiotic is? Uh, let me look it up. So the company that. What that used to sell it was called Cardovia, mm-hmm. um, but let me look up, there's an, I'll tell you what the, the new one is. You can get it on Amazon. Um. But um,
0: yeah, actually I remember when I was in high school, you know, my cousin went to the doctor and had his first kind of like full, you know, like lipid blood test and, his, you know, his cholesterol came back and it was like 17. Um, You know, <laughs> they were like, oh man, like we must have messed this one up, you know, we'll do it again. Um, you know at the time everyone was like wow that's amazing like you have no cholesterol that's great um but uh yeah it wasn't that he was like a super healthy eater or anything like that it was just kind of like a a genetic thing right so yeah
1: yeah um so this one it's called if you go to you get on amazon it's called microbiome plus gastrointestinal probiotics um so if you look that up you'll you'll see it there's like just that one product and it's a specific strain um the strain, if you're interested, yeah. is NCIMB three zero two four two. That's like the specific strain of bacteria, right. and there are a couple. There are a couple. Cli- there are a couple of clinical trials that show its efficacy in improving cardiovascular disease risk profiles. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely have to check that out. Um,
0: what do you think right now is kind of the biggest? You know, the biggest or most recent kind of groundbreaking? You know, news research to come out. Um, you know, as far as things, something that's like totally changed your mind is, you know, I used to do X and like, now we don't do that anymore because, you know, something really came out and changed my mind about it.
1: Um, I don't do, I would say I don't do, uh, lick. I used to be a big, more aggressive with like carbs after exercise, like Mm -hmm. liquid carbs, like right after exercise. I know you guys had a, had an article not too long ago, kind of like on the post-workout window. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And so like I used to be like a much bigger, like you need kind of high glycemic, you need to like hammer those carbs post exercise. Not so much really anymore. I think we've just kind of come to appreciate that while insulin is anabolic, it's not necess- it's like anabolic in nature. It's not driving anabolism. You know, right. it's not driving muscle growth at that level. And then unless you're someone who's doing two a days or is training, you know, seven days a week intensely for multiple, you know, several hours, like you just don't need those liquid calories right away. Like you don't need to send your body on that hormonal roller coaster. Um, so that's, that's one big change. Um, I think the other thing more recently that I've become interested in is how circadian rhythms impact, um, uh, metabolism. So kind of how the sun and kind of like how the sun like rising and setting and the, the light dark cycles, how that impacts metabolism. And glucose tolerance. And so generally how, you know, research across uh, animals and, and some human data showing that your carbohydrate uh, tolerance decreases as the day goes on. And, you know, we were talking about fasting. The interesting thing about like intermittent fasting is that people generally do it the opposite of an approach that would be in sync with your circadian rhythms where you should eat your largest meal early in the morning. That's carbohydrate rich. And then smaller meals as the day goes on. Whereas most people, when they fast eat nothing in the morning and they eat a big meal in the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was one study that showed basically eating a large meal in the morning and then, or a large meal at night, same meal, same composition. And the people who ate it in the morning, that one large meal, had better had greater improvements in 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 uh, body composition and a couple different biomarkers that were studied. So just kind of like how does that and I see that like when we're talking kind of about like your foundational nutrition approach you start to get a little more specific and then you get in like really specific. This is like really specific. If, you, sure. if you're still if you're still drinking cokes like let's not talk about sinking no, that makes your diet to your circadian rhythm. Um,
0: yeah, I was actually under the impression that with intermittent fasting, you know the whole part of the whole idea was to eat after lunch uh or after you know traditional lunchtime afternoon uh because you wanted to kind of by delaying that food um you were kind of like optimizing your body's like hormones as far as uh you know muscle recovery and fat loss um yeah. but you know maybe that's maybe that's not the
1: case well but- i think it's it's basically i think you take that same idea but if you just reversed it. So if you know, instead of with your fasting, you're eating your largest meal in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. You know, generally how people would do it. If you just eat your largest meal in the morning, and so you're getting that calorie deficit just through the evening instead of through the morning. Sure. Um I it just doesn't jive I think the biggest issue with most people, it just doesn't jive socially. Sure. Uh, you know, for people to eat their last meal at five o'clock and have it be a relatively small meal. Right. Um but I think that part um circadian rhythms and nutrition and metabolism is kind of the thing that has got me, that's got me the most interested um, recently.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. And I do think that, I mean, for anyone that is feeding more than just themselves, whether, you know, it's your, your significant other, or especially if you have kids makes it that much harder to, you know, like cook a separate meal for yourself. Totally. um, The rest of the family. And I think long-term that's just not a viable solution. Yep. Um, yeah, for, I have four little people. kids,
1: so it's like, you know, trying to, how, how you balance, yeah, how do you balance like these like little bits and pieces and, you know, but in
0: the context right. of your family is, is definitely difficult. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what's coming up next for you? I mean, what, what is on the horizon and, you know, what's the next frontier?
1: Um, yeah, I think the next frontier is, uh, about a year ago, we started, um, uh, started a coffee company called NeuroCoffee. Mm -hmm. And it's a a coffee that's infused with antioxidants from the coffee fruit itself that uh, supports your body's ability to grow and repair neurons. And so kind of with that, I've become a lot more focused kind of on brain nutrition Mm -hmm. and and been a lot more interested. And that's kind of where the circadian rhythm stuff comes in, just kind of through how light sensing in, in your brain, how that impacts metabolism. So I think kind of the brain side of nutrition is right. the biggest, um, it's kind of the next area that I'm, that I'm most interested in. So what are your think- thoughts
0: on, you know, there's, I feel like there's all these like mushroom strain, like neurotropics is the new, <laughs> Yeah, not even that new, but it's kind of like the big thing, right? You know, like take this pill and it's going to make you way smarter, or, like make you forget less stuff or, you know, make you sharper. And all these, I feel like there's such a, to me, I've always felt like, man, this has got to be placebo effect. Um, yeah, but maybe not, you know, maybe, maybe this is the moment where you tell me that I'm, I'm an idiot. No, no, no.
1: I think you're right. I think most of it's like, it's most of it's horseshit for lack of a better, (laughs) um, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, if you look at like there just was a report, it was either the FDA or the FTC just completed, which basically said the world of nootropics is the wild west full of claims that shouldn't be made and that we need, they need to take more regulatory um, effort and time to, to scour that, that area. So I think you're right. I think while nootropics are, um, you know, becoming more popular, um, it's just a lot. So much of it is just, you know, snake oil. Yeah.
0: Um, well, that's good to know. So as far as the antioxidant coffee, going back to that, you know, is that, is that better than, or should it be used in conjunction with kind of like the whole, like high fat coffee what's your take on you know like coffee with mct or coffee with butter you know like
1: yeah uh, i don't really like if you like butter in your coffee i think you can go for it mm-hmm. um just like i do you know, one of the things like i never would change with a client like is like is their coffee habit like generally people be like when they sit down and meet with me they're like you tell me i can't have sugar in my coffee I'm like you know what a teaspoon or two teaspoons of sugar in your coffee is not the thing that's make or breaking, you know your your ability to reach your goals here. Um, I think adding butter to your coffee really does nothing, other than add butter to your coffee. In mm-hmm. my like, from a scientific standpoint, um, if you're doing it to improve like ketone production, like there are better ways to do that. Um, I think like an MCT powder does a little better job at that. But if you're eating a meal with your cup of coffee that has ketones in it, like. The insulin production from your meal is going to squelch your body's ability to produce ketones. So right. um, so so I mean, so with the butter coffee or fat in your coffee, I think you could do it if you want, but if you're doing it to improve your brain health, I don't think there's really data to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, NeuroCoffee is kind of independent. So basically what it does is we have two clinical trials showing that this antioxidant, um, this patented antioxidant mix, improves, uh, increase a protein in your body called BDNF, which is got brain derived neurotrophic factor, which is the same thing when you exercise intensely that gets released and that causes, uh, neurons to grow and be repaired. And so as you get older, your body produces less of this. It might be a function of just, you know, be, people are less active as they get older. Um, but with this coffee, coffee, I've always, I was always trying to like figure out like, what could I put in coffee? Because people drink coffee every day. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you like, I don't even take my, like, Fish oil, I'm a big, you know, I think it's important to have long chain fatty acids and I forget to take that every day, but I always have at least two cups of coffee a day. And so kind of thinking like, what's something, and it kind of gets in with the friction of life. I think people's nutrition plans fail when the friction of their lives get in the way. True. Um, and so with enhancing coffee with something that was, would help you, that was a way that you would always be able to get it in. Mm-hmm. Um And I think just kind of going back to talking about like the foundation of your nutrition and this is something that like Brooke and I had talked about when she was like working on meal plans is like, how can you make something one time and then reuse it a couple other times? Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know that, that, I mean, basically what that's doing, it's helping reduce the friction of nutrition in your life, which is going to help you do it more. And so neuro coffee was just a way that you could improve or support your brain health uh, in a low friction
0: manner. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, where can people find that if
1: they're interested? Um, so right now you can get it online at getneurocoffee.com, and uh, hopefully in the next three to four months we'll be in some some retail settings um, nationally. But right now it's just at getneurocoffee.com, and we have it in ground coffee and also K cups.
0: Cool. Awesome. And where else can people follow you online?
1: To um, uh, Mike Russell, M-I-K-E-R-O-U-S-S-E-L-L, um, is my Twitter, my Instagram handle. And also, uh is my website. So it's all kind of very simple. Awesome, Doctor Mike. Thanks
0: so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We will uh, hopefully be able to do this again and get a little bit uh, continue to dive, you know, deeper and deeper into the the complexities of nutrition and uh, and cardiovascular health. Yeah. So. No. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I Appreciate it. Thanks. thanks. Have a good one.